This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Pat Prince, Goldmine Editor, and this is the Goldmine Podcast. Welcome back. Author Joe Milliken will be on the podcast to talk about his book, Let's Go. It's the first biography of Benjamin Orr of the Cars. The book goes into heavy detail about Benjamin Orr's upbringing in the Cleveland, Ohio area, how he joined many bands there, and then made his way to Boston, and then formed the Cars, and after that, he went on to other bands, until his untimely death in the fall of 2000. So we'll be right back to talk to Joe Milliken about his Benjamin Orr biography, Let's Go, right after these messages. Hey, I'm Ronald Webb, and this is Patrick Prince. And together we host the Goldmine Radio Hour, the show that features the latest issue of Goldmine, the music collector's magazine. Tune in Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on CygnusRadio.com. Okay, well, we're glad to have Joe Milliken, author of the Benjamin Orr biography, Let's Go. Uh, Benjamin, the bassist, and Cole lead vocalist of the cars of course and joe maybe we can get some background on yourself before we talk more about the book sure well first of all um pat it's really nice to be with you and i really appreciate the opportunity to um get to talk with you about the book as you know um i've been a long time fan of Goldmine Magazine and a contributing writer on and off yes. over the years. So so this one's really special to me, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Um, so as far as, um, I'll be quick about it, as far as my writing background goes, um, I was, uh, I went to college for art. I was an art student. And when I was in high school, I was a pretty good artist. And then when I got to college, um, I can remember us all sitting around in the art room getting ready to hand in our first projects. And I looked around the room and I went, huh, everybody in this room is better than me in art. <laughs> so I'm not so sure how uh, my art career is going to go. <laughs> um, but I've always been into writing. So while I was taking art classes, I was also um, into creative writing and journalism. So I always had a love for writing as well. And you know, when I kind of went away from art, um, I still needed that creative outlet, mm. and writing sort of became that for me. Um, I've been a published writer for a little over 20 years now, but it was always just magazines and newspapers. Um, this book about Ben Orr um, is my first book, so it was a whole new experience for me. Um, writing a book and publishing a book is a totally different animal than writing for newspapers and magazines. So it's been a really great experience, though, um, quite a journey. And uh, it's um, it's been a labor of love. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm still I'm still doing some freelance writing. 
I also have a full-time job too um, to help pay the bills, if you will. Of course. Um, but the book is done. The book is done really well. It's been well accepted ha- by yeah. the fans and the media, and um, I'm really proud of it. To be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, you did a lot of research in this book. You said it took about 11 years to gather all the material and research. So that's why the book reads so well. It's filled, packed with a lot of stuff and stuff that people don't realize about Benjamin Moore. Or he was in a lot of uh, different bands besides the Cars, Um, ones that didn't take off. But he he was always creatively busy, and it puts a lot of light on that. He was, um, it's the only thing this guy ever wanted to do in his life. Yes. He's, um, he was, he started out as a drummer. Um, I, um, his godparents gave him a drum kit when he was 10 years old. Oh. And by the time he was 13, he was mm. already in a band. Yes. And he eventually, you know, became a guitar player too. And it's funny, you know, Cars fans, and after he became famous, everybody knows him as a bass player. But he was really a multifaceted musician, a drummer and a guitar player, and he could play anything. Um, So he's really well-rounded in that regard. Um, I've done some interviews on the book, and, and sometimes interviews will say to me, did it really take you 10 years to do this book? Why did it take so long? And like I just mentioned, I'm also a freelance writer and I have a job and a family. So I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, I sat in my office for eight hours a day working on this book. <laughs> right. I, I kind of did it in my spare time, you know? Yes. And I, I never met Benjamin. That's another thing I always like or want to express to people. Um, I, when I started this book, Benjamin passed away in 2000, so he was already gone for several years when I decided to do this book. So I said to myself, if you can't interview the man himself, what's the next best thing to do? Right. And that is to interview as many people as you can who did know him. Right. And that's how the process kind of started. And in the end, I ended up interviewing over 120 people right. for this book who knew Ben. Yeah. So... I just started out with a short list of names to people to interview, and everybody I talked to, like, the path just kind of... Grew. I just kind of followed the path wherever Mm. it took me, because everybody I would talk to would say, so by the way, did you talk to so-and-so? I go, no, who's that? You don't know that? Well, this person knows Ben really well. Here, I'll get a hold of him. You need to talk to this person. And everybody I talked to almost had someone else that they... um, they said I should talk to who knew Ben. I could, to be honest with you, I could still be doing interviews now. I had to eventually cut it off. You, <laughs> you have no, I had no idea how many people a rock star can know. Yes. <laughs> it, it was amazing. I eventually had to go, okay, I can't do this anymore. I've got to stop. So that's kind of how it happened. <clears throat> so originally he was Benjamin Orzechowski. Is that how you pronounce it? That's correct, Orzechowski, <laughs> of Polish could, descent, obviously. I could see and when he, cutting it down to Orr. Yeah, well, when he was young, before he, for yeah, entertainment he turned industry. it into Orr once, you know, he was older and, was, yeah. you know, the band was starting to take off. But when he was young, because like I mentioned, he was always in bands from when he was 13 years old on. Yeah. So his friends and early bandmates and people in the Cleveland area, that's where he grew up, um, they had trouble with his last name, too, so they started calling him Benny Eleven Letters. Yeah, I remember reading that in your book, yeah. Yeah, um, so that was, kind of his, that was kind of his nickname for a while. <laughs> <laughs> who, was, who was the most interesting person you interviewed for this book, if you had to say? Wow, that's, that's a good one. Uh, you know, sometimes when I do interviews now... Um, I try my best to try to, you know, think of new things to say. Yeah. Not that everybody who listens to this will have heard all my other interviews, but, you know, there's only so many questions you can get asked about something. Yeah. And I, sometimes I feel like, okay, I'm not going to get any new ones thrown at me, but I think that's a new one. So <laughs> good job doing that. Um, <laughs> I think for me... I mean, of course, they were all very gracious to me. Um, I interviewed all the significant women in his life. He was married twice. Yes. Um, So I interviewed the significant, and they were all very gracious and kind to me. And, of course, interviewing people who were in bands with him when he was young so I could learn about his early days, those were all interesting. They were all great. Um, But if I had to pick one or two, I think for me it would be 
that I got two of the four surviving members of the cars mm. um, to interview with me about this book. Uh, Greg Hawks, the keyboard player, and David Robinson, the drummer, mm. were both kind enough to interview with me. And I tell you, I, I'm so thankful that they did because, you know, it just... it. It adds legitimacy to the book. Yes. I mean, if I had done this book about Ben and I didn't interview anybody about the cars, it would seem like, or interview anyone from the cars, it would seem like it would leave a hole there that needed to be filled. So I was very thankful that two out of the four members um, did contribute to the book, and they were both very gracious and kind, and just hearing their stories. You know, the guys who were right there on stage with Ben all those years. Mm. Um, those were the those were my two favorite interviews, getting to talk to um, other guys in the in the cars. That was just a lot of fun for me. Well I took I took notes, um, and so let's start I took notes while reading your book and let's start back go back to the mid sixties. And Ben was in a band called the Grasshoppers and that was the band you were talking about, right? When he started out, he was probably what in his teens, maybe. Um, yeah. yeah, he had a couple. He actually had a couple of other bands before that, uh. but the Grasshoppers was the first band he was in. I think it was the third band overall that he was in. But the Grasshoppers was really the band where he started to get a little taste of success, if you will. Um, he was 17 years old, I believe, 16 or 17, when he joined the Grasshoppers. And this was a band that was already in existence. Um, mm -hmm. And the leader of the Grasshoppers at the time, the leader of the band, singer-guitar player, he's a gentleman named Dante Rossi, who was actually uh, ended up being a pretty big name in Cleveland music, um, he decided that he was going to leave the Grasshoppers and start his own band, mm. and he kind of turned the reins over to Ben. He already knew who Ben was, really thought that Ben was a talented guy, and he sort of said, I'm going to be leaving to start a new band. You know, Do you want to audition and fit in with these guys and sort of take over for me? So when Ben joined the Grasshoppers, they were already a pretty big band yeah. in the city of Cleveland. Right. So what happened was, this is how he got his first taste of success, though. Um, in, at that time, in Cleveland, there was a music television show based in Cleveland called Upbeat. Mm. And it was sort of the American bandstand of Cleveland. They right. would bring in national acts who were doing, you know, who had whatever was a popular hit at the time to do their, to lip sync their songs on the show, just like you would see on American Bandstand. But what made this show a little different was they had house bands behind them. So when they segued in and out of commercials or whatever, they would have a house band play music. And the house bands, they would go into Cleveland and find local Cleveland bands that they thought were interesting and would bring them in, sign them to a 13-week contract or whatever to be a house band on the show. And the Grasshoppers were chosen. So this was actually one of the reasons why I decided to pick and write about Ben because somebody had approached me and said, I think you should write a book about Ben Orr. And I was like, well... Why wouldn't I just write a book about the cars in general? Or if I was going to pick an individual, why wouldn't I pick Rick Ocasek? Right. I mean, he was pretty much the leader of the band, the main songwriter. And this Cars fan said, just look up Ben, investigate him a little and see what you think. So when I did that, I started learning all these things about Ben, how he's from Cleveland, which is the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm. So I thought that was cool right off the bat. And then I learned about how he was a musician his whole life. And I learned about this Grasshoppers band. I didn't, I had never heard of this show, Upbeat, before. Mm -hmm. It was actually ended up being a nationally syndicated TV show. It was seen, in its peak, it was seen in like a hundred cities across the country. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't quite as big as American Bandstand, but it was a pretty big deal at the time. Um, yeah. That show went from... It was. It started in the late 50s, I think, and it went all through the 60s and I think into the early 70s. Mm. Um, so it was a pretty big show. So here I am thinking, wow, this kid is 17 years old and he's in a band that's on a TV show, nationally syndicated. And this is like a dozen years before the cars even existed. Yes. And that's when I decided, man, I got to write about this guy and tell a story. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was really cool. And the Grasshoppers ha had then had two singles on the Sunburst 
label. Um, one, one called Pink Champagne, written by Ben. like that music when you heard it what'd you think um well if i'm gonna be completely honest it wasn't exactly my cup of tea right. i'm basically a classic rock guy i mean yes. you know i'm i'm in my mid-50s so when i first started getting into rock and roll you know in junior high school that was the late 70s and the cars were one of my first favorite bands i've always loved the band mm-hmm. so i'm kind of a hard rock, you know, Cars, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith, that kind right. of thing. And this stuff predates that a little bit. Not that I didn't like it, though. Um, yeah. It's just rock and roll was a little different in the 50s and the <laughs> 60s. Yes. So I did like the songs, but, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that I'd probably go out of my way to <laughs> to go and get these songs, um, although I do have recordings of them now. I did like the songs, though. It was just kind of a different style than what I'm normally used to. Right. But then he went into another kind of style, which was sort of like a Crosby, Stills, and Nash kind of style, right? Was that with Leatherwood and then Milkwood? Maybe you could tell a little That's bit correct. about that. See, you did your research. Milkwood, like yes. <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, like I said, you know, he was living in the Ohio area early in his life, and he actually met Rick. Um, Rick was also in that area. Yes. Uh, Rick is originally from the Baltimore area, but when he was um, early high school years, um, his family moved to the Cleveland area. He didn't live right in Cleveland, but that area. So he also became a musician, obviously. So his bands and Ben's bands were sort of playing the same circuits in the same clubs. So that's how they eventually met, and then they decided to have a band together. And they toiled around the Cleveland area, Michigan. Um, I tell you, this was, they weren't an overnight success. I tell you, they really, <laughs> they were on the road and were, you know, quote unquote, starving musicians for a long time. Right. They went to New York for a while to try to get a record deal. That didn't work. Came back to Cleveland again. So they were together for almost a decade before finally Rick decided, okay, it's just not working in this area. I want to go to Boston. It's a college town. You know, I hear it's a really hip scene. There's, um, you know, because it's a college town, there's always a place to play as far as, you know, college parties and clubs. And the club scene was really big in Boston at the time. So Rick decided to go to Boston. And Ben didn't go with him at first. Mm. Um, this is, you know, the early 70s now. <clears throat> and Ben had lost his dad. So he decided he didn't want to go to Boston. He wanted to stay back in Cleveland and be with his mom and kind of help her get back on her feet and make sure she was okay. But then after about six months or so, because Rick kept getting a hold of Ben saying, you got to come to Boston, you got to come. And eventually when Ben felt comfortable enough to, you know, leave um, the area in Cleveland, they felt like his mom was doing okay. He eventually went to Boston and they started a band there, and that's where Milkwood comes in. They, um, you know, the early 70s at the time, that whole acoustic, folky, you know, Crosby, yes. Stills, and Nash kind of thing was big for a few years. And not that it, you know, it was always, there's always an audience for it, but it was really big for a few years in the early 70s. So they actually started out as a duo 
an acoustic duo and we're just playing bars and clubs and they did that for a while and they actually got a record deal and the Milkwood album came out um, but it didn't do very well so they kind of scrapped that whole idea that was How's and the Weather was called? How's the that, Weather How's yeah. the Weather <laughs> right they're really they're really hard to find now too as a matter wow. of fact um, I don't own a copy but I've like seen it before on eBay and that thing they get like hundreds of dollars for that album now Yes. You know, if you're a cars, if you're a big cars fan and a cars collector, and you really want that thing, you got to pay a few hundred bucks for it now. Yes, um, our, our so, readers will love that if they haven't heard about yeah, it already. Yeah, right. Yeah, if you have a copy of Milkwood, um, there's a cars fan out there that will pay big bucks for it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't, I haven't taken the plunge on that one yet. I would like to have a copy of it, mm. just you know, to have it, but I haven't gotten that far yet. Um, so anyway, when Milkwood didn't really go anywhere, um, Rick, being the leader of the band and the main songwriter, decided to scrap that idea and he wanted to turn to more of a traditional rock sound, I guess. He was really into Velvet Underground yes. and you know the whole Lou Reed thing. Um, that was his kind of deal back then. So he stripped it all down, tried to be a rock band again. And that's when they brought in the other guys in the band. And before they became the Cars, they were a band called Captain Swing. Yes. Don't ask me where that name comes from or how they got that. <laughs> but um, that's it was a rock band format. It was a rock band format, but not quite, um, not quite sounding like the Cars. It was. I kind of describe it as more a smoother almost jazzier kind of sounding like steely dan kind of sound interesting yeah. so kind of in between an acoustic sound and a hard rock sound and they were cat and swing for a while and that's when they started to get noticed a little bit yeah and that's when elliot the, joined the band right elliot easton joined and correct and and then they brought in greg hawks as well um, and that's when they actually started to get a little airplay. So now we're talking about 1975 and 76. And back in those days, radio DJs had a little more freedom, a lot more freedom than they do now. Now a DJ has to look at a piece of paper and follow a format, and this is what you're going to play. Back then, DJs were allowed to play things that they liked or new things that they thought the audience would like. And there was a now famous DJ in Boston. Her name is Maxanne Sartori, and she's pretty well known. Um, she was known for helping Aerosmith get started, because obviously, of course, they were in the Boston area. She helped Billy Squire in his early days. And she went to a club one night and heard Captain Swing. So they weren't even the cars yet. And she really liked their songs, and she met the guys in the band, and she took a demo that they had made in a local studio, and she actually started putting it on the air in WBCN. Mm. Which, of course, you know, if you're a rock fan and you're into radio, you know, a lot of people know yes. WBCN. I mean, one of the most prolific rock stations ever in this country. Um, she started playing it on the air, and people started liking it, and that's how they kind of got some momentum going. And then, of course, they... Of course, of course, Rick. Uh, Rick has been known to be kind of—he was kind of accused of being a dictator at times. Um, not that that's really a bad thing, though. Yeah, for a band, Rick, someone needs to take charge when it's called, you know. Yeah. And you know, being the main songwriter, so he decided the Captain Swing thing was going okay, but he wanted to strip it down even more and have a more of a basic rock sound. Because I had mentioned Captain Swing had a little jazzier yeah. kind of feel and to it. And it was a, hor that's a horrible that's name, Captain Swing, in my opinion. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's why I said when I first said I'm like, don't ask me where he got that name from because I don't know. Well, here's another one. Before Captain Swing, they were called Richard and the Rabbits. Right, I heard. I read that now, in the book. That's a weird. Yeah, that's not that gonna, for a weird sounding name. I'm glad they dumped that name. For I don't sure. think that would have um, even gone in, in, in the mid '60s. Richard and the Rabbits. Was, <laughs> exactly. Um, so anyway, he decided to strip it down even more so, thinking about that Velvet Underground right. kind of sound. And all, so now we're talking around 77, 78, and this is also when 
you know, I hate to label music or label genres, but it's when that more new wave-ish kind of sound was coming in. Sure. Like Blondie and Talking Heads. And right. that sound was starting to, to, you know, be all over the record charts. So he stripped it down again, and he went into his basement, and he scrapped all the songs, all the songs except for one or two that Captain Swing had been playing, because they were doing original music with Captain Swing. They'd throw a cover in here or there, but it was still original music they were doing. Scrapped all those songs, and that's when he wrote all of the songs that appeared on that iconic debut right. Cars album. Did any Captain Swing's those... songs survive? Bye Bye Love. Ah, nice. <laughs> Bye Bye I think there's one more, too, and it's escaping me at the moment, but Bye Bye Love is the one that stands out. I've heard some demos. There's floating around in the fan. The, um, we call the Cars fans uh, the Fanorama, we nice. call it. <laughs> and um, there's some Captain Swing demos floating around, hmm. and I've heard those demos, and Bye Bye Love is the one that stands out to me. It was a more jazzier, Steely Dan kind of version of it. Well, and by the way, I love the Captain Swing sound. I, I thought it was great stuff. survived but think about that he goes in the basement and says okay i gotta strip this down even more i'm gonna write a whole new batch of songs and he wrote that debut cars album that's amazing to me before i ever even wrote this book i told you i was a big cars fan yeah i mean every song on that thing has been on classic rock radio and he wrote that all in one batch within a few months Mm. amazing Amazing. that is (laughs) so we know the rest we know the history of the cars um, yep. So then Benjamin, he decided to, when all was said and done for the moment with the cars, um, to do his first solo album, The Lace, in 86. And he co wrote the music, did the lyrics with his girlfriend, uh, Diane Page, right? Is her name? That's, who sang backing vocals. And the album, they had one hit, I think it was called Stay of the Night, right? That's right. And there was another song that got a little radio play called Too Hot to Stop. Yes. That was another that was another song that actually got on the charts a little bit. It got on the the Hot 100. But yeah, Stay the Night was the hit. Um well, ironically, when Ben um did his solo album, it really wasn't even in his plans. I mean, the cars were still the yeah. cars didn't break up till 87. Right. So, but they, didn't they, he get a sense still, that some it was time um, not to move on, but yeah. to to do some, you know, of his own yeah, creative. Was, by then, by then there was starting to be a little bit of dissension in the band. Yes. And, um, you know, I really wanted this book to be um, mostly positive, have a yes. positive spin. Right. And I mean, the car is breaking up. I mean, it's part of their history. It is what it is. Mm. And, you know, obviously if a band's breaking up, you know, let's be honest, things aren't going that great. You don't break up because things are going great. You break up because things are going a little sour. Um, and, of course, I do talk about it in the book. Um, but 
but I tried not to make it a prominent subject in the book. I, right. you know, some of the people I interviewed talked a little bit about it, so I do, I do mention it a little bit in the book because it is part of their history. Um, but when Ben did that solo album, he was approached by Electra Records, which is the Cars label, mm. and they said, "Hey, do you want to do a solo record?" And he kind of looked around and went, "Well." Um, I hadn't even thought about it, but if you're giving me the opportunity, I might as well jump on it. Do you and, think they uh, asked him uh, because of Drive? They, that, uh, they asked him if right. he wanted to do the solo record. Do you think it was because of the success of Drive that they asked him? Um, because Drive was, you know, that made him into a sort of heartthrob, right? Don't you think? That ballad? I think it added to it. Yeah. I think... Um, I think he was already considered like the rock star of the band, right. um, if you will. You know, good-looking guy, dressed to the nines, that striking blonde hair. Yes. Although he also dyed it black, too, at times during his time with the cars. But I think he was already thought of that way by, obviously, female fans of the band. Um, mm. But you're right, I'm sure that Drive, because the Drive was their... They never had a number one song, and Drive was the closest they ever came. Mm. And I think Drive made it to, like, number two or three mm. on the singles chart. So that was the biggest hit they ever had. So I'm sure it played a part in them approaching Ben exactly. about doing a solo record. Right. And you had mentioned Diane Page, um, who was his significant other at the time. Um, they never got married, but they were together for eight years. And mm. I interviewed Diane for the book. She was very right. gracious to me. Um, as a matter of fact, after the book came out, um, I did a book event. I did a couple of book events. I did one in Cleveland, of course, Ben's hometown, and I did a book event in Boston. And uh, David Robinson from The Cars was kind enough to come to my book event, and I got to meet him in person that night. And Diane Page was there, mm. and she lives in Florida. So wow. she flew up for, from Florida for my book event and surprised me. I didn't even know she was coming. So here I am standing in the lobby after we did our little speech and stuff, or I did a, a Q&A with the crowd. It was moderated. And um, I, did, I was in the lobby signing books, and I got a tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and there she was. Huh. Like, here I am, ta-da! <laughs> Surprised the heck out of me. I was so happy to meet her face-to-face because -face, she was really kind to me. She did a lot of interviews with me, gave me a lot of good information about Ben. and um, So, yeah, anyway, back to his solo album. She was with him at the time. And, you know, one thing I'll say about Ben, although he had always written songs when he was younger, we mentioned the Grasshopper singles that he wrote, um, I don't want to go as far as to say he was self-conscious about writing lyrics, right. uh, but it wasn't necessarily his forte. He was a great musician, and he could write melodies and stuff, but lyrics wasn't necessarily his forte, which was another reason or a big reason why him and Rick got along and fit together so well. Ben had no problem at all letting Rick be the lyric writer. You write the songs, man, and I'll sing them. That's what his attitude was. Um, so writing lyrics wasn't necessarily his forte, and um, Diane Page had a musical background, and she did like words and writing and lyrics. So that's why they kind of did it together. So they, she actually wrote lyrics with Ben, and Ben wrote the melodies for the songs, and she wrote the lyrics. So it was actually a really good team uh, when they did that album together. Interesting. And then he, went, then he had other bands. I mean, he had Orr. O-R-R, -R, obviously, and a couple of side bands. And then eventually his last band was Big People, which was mostly a cover band, correct? Well, yeah. So um, after the solo album came out, which did really well, um, especially since it wasn't even something that he had been thinking about doing, right. it was sort of asked upon him to do it. Um, so then, you know, in 87... Um, you know, the things continued with the band going kind of downhill, and obviously we don't need to get into too right. many details about that. But when the band broke up, um, Ben decided that he just wanted to get away from music for a while. Um, something I haven't mentioned in this interview is that Ben was not your typical rock star. He was not a person who sought out the spotlight. Right. Um, he was a regular guy. He didn't walk around, look at me, I'm Ben Orr. Um, he was 
I, I describe it as he used to flip a switch to go on stage and be a rock star. And then he'd thrill people, thrill millions of people on stage, and then he'd come off stage, and he'd flip that switch off, and he'd go back to being a regular guy. So when the band broke up, he wanted to actually get away from music and being in the spotlight for a while. And he lived, he had a house in Boston at the time, because obviously Boston is considered the car's home base. He sold his house in Boston, and ironically, he moved to where the state where I now live. He moved to Vermont. <laughs> um, he moved. How ironic is that? That it I is. read a book, and yeah. I didn't even know that. And then eventually, I find out that he ended up living like an hour away from where I live now. <laughs> um, yeah, it was real. I thought that was. I feel like it. Uh, it adds to my connection with Ben in some way. Yeah. Um, so he moved to Vermont and bought a house in Vermont and had nothing to do really with music for a few years. He just want, he was a believer. You know, you see Rick, you see Ben on stage and he's you know dressed in leather and just looking like a cool rock star. Off stage, he was wearing blue jeans and flannel shirts and drove a pickup truck and he liked to hunt and fish. He was like a woodsman, <laughs> the total opposite of what I thought he would be. Yes. Um, so he lived in Vermont in relative obscurity for a few years. Hmm. But then eventually he started getting the itch again because, I mean, like I said earlier in the interview, that Ben was, that's all he ever wanted to do, was be a musician and play music and be in a national band. So eventually he got the itch again and decided to put his own band together, which he did, and, but he wasn't concerned about record deals or, you know, can I get as famous as I was in the cars, playing, you know, big venues. He wasn't into any of that. He just wanted to play music for people again. And he actually played bars and little clubs mm. up here in Vermont. I started learning some of the places he played, and I wish I had known um, clubs, clubs and bars that I've been to before. Mm. I look around and go, Ben Orr played in this little place? Mm. Um he just wanted to be a musician again, and that's what he did. So he was doing his or band for a while. He did eventually start doing a little bit of touring. He did mostly New England area shows. But, you know, if he got invited to do a festival or something, he would fly out to Denver and do a couple of shows and come back. So he did start doing a little traveling again. And then you mentioned this band, Big People. Mm -hmm. um, they were a band of already famous musicians. Um, Jeff Carlisi, who was guitar player and songwriter for 38 Special, was in the band. The drummer was Billy Joel's longtime drummer, Liberty DeVito. Mm -hmm. um, one of the guitar players was Derek St. Holmes, who was a um, longtime rhythm guitar player in Ted Nugent's band. Mm -hmm. um, and Pat Travers, Canadian yes. rock guitarist Pat Travers, was also in the band for a while. Yes. So these guys were already famous musicians, and they had all gotten together in Atlanta, is where they were based. Hmm. And they all sat around, they wanted to start this band, and they looked around and said, okay, well, we need a bass player. And one of the guys in the band said, well, I know Elliot Easton. I wonder what Ben Orr's doing. <laughs> <laughs> so they got a hold of Ben up in Vermont and said, here's who we are. Here's what we're doing. Would you like to come down and talk to us and see what you think? So Ben said, sure, I'll come down. So Ben flew from Vermont down to Atlanta. And I interviewed all of the guys in Big People for this book. Mm -hmm. They all talked to me. They were all very gracious to me. And there's one story I'll tell you real quick. The first time they met Ben, he flies, he flies down to Atlanta, and they all meet in this Thai restaurant to sit down and talk about what they were going to be doing to see if Ben would be interested. And they told me that Ben walked into the room, into this restaurant, and they were all in awe of him. He had this aura about him. And we're talking about guys that are already famous musicians in their own right. Mm. They've all been on million-selling records in their own right. And they were all in awe of Ben. And they sat down and had a meal together and said, you know, do you want to join our band? And Ben was in. Wow. So they formed big people, and you mentioned them being a covers band, and it was because they weren't, they hadn't had time to start writing any original material, but they started hooking up on a couple tours. They were warming up for sticks for a while, 
mm. and doing some festival stuff. And what they would do is they would, you know, Ben's in the band, so they'd play a few Cars songs. They'd play a few 38 special songs from Jeff Carlisi's band. They'd play a few, uh, you know, Ted Nugent songs because, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Derek St. Holmes right. sang as well in that band. So he would do Stranglehold mm. um, and a couple of Nugent songs. And uh, they did a couple of Pat Travers songs. They would do, you know, snorting whiskey and drinking cocaine. And so it was really a covers band. They were just doing songs from all the band members' sure. previous bands. And it worked out really well. And here's here's the part where obviously it, it gets it gets sad. They were doing this for about a year. They had built up momentum. I actually interviewed the gentleman who was managing the band at the time. And I interviewed him and he said, Joe, these guys were on the brink of being big. They had just gotten to the point where they were going to start writing original material and try to get a record deal. He said they were going to be big. And that's when Ben was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Uh, and it all kind of stopped right there. Well, he kept they playing... He kept playing, but um, I think it was Liberty DeVito said in your book, um, one night uh, Ben said he wasn't going to sing Drive, and DeVito said I think that was that's when he knew, that they knew. it was yeah. over. Well, when Ben got diagnosed, they had just booked a tour for a couple of months, a whole bunch of shows. And all the guys in the band, when they got the horrible news, and obviously they're thinking about Ben first and foremost, their friend, uh, but they all assumed, well, that's it. It's over right now. We're not going to do this tour. It's done. Mm -hmm. And Ben said, Ben said, Baloney, book that tour, and we're doing it, and I'm going to play bass and sing and play with you guys until I can't do it anymore. So they did do that tour. And mm -hmm. even when Ben started getting more sick and more physically ill you mm. could see that something was not right um and you know you got to remember here's this handsome guy that that all these people know of you know ben the handsome rock star he didn't even let that affect him he still continued to go on stage and these all these guys told me stories about how tough he was and even when he was really struggling at the end he continued to fly on the planes and go and do these shows and he did all of the shows except the very last one. So he actually completed this whole tour. And at the end, the last show he did was in Alaska. There was a mm. festival out there, um, Palmer, Alaska. And then um, I've, I wrote about this in the book. The, the cars wanted to get together with Ben one more time. You know, and sort of, you know, have a... Pro the, I guess the Cars were releasing a, a live DVD on Electro Records at the time. Right. So they asked Ben, do you want to participate in an interview with us so we can promote this? Well, you know, the, the, the promotion of the, of the DVD wasn't the important part. That was just the vehicle. But they wanted to all get together as a band because they hadn't really been together, all everybody together in the same room in yeah. quite a long time. In fact, you have a great photo so of ben, it. Yeah, in the book, there's a great photo of it. Yes. As a matter of fact, the gentleman who moderated that last interview, Brett yeah. Morano, he moderated my book event in Boston. Oh. I interviewed that gentleman for the book, and I asked him if he want because he lives in the Boston area, and asked him if he wanted to moderate my my uh, my book event. And he was his name is Brett Milano, and he was he was kind enough to do that. So I've met Brett and interviewed him for the book. So Ben flies from Alaska all the way back to Atlanta, cross country to do this interview with the guys in the band. And that Cars DVD, that live DVD that was eventually came out, they put that last interview, they included it in the DVD. So if you get that DVD, you can watch it and actually see the last interview that they did. Mm -hmm. And you can tell Ben is physically weak and not well. Um, but they did that interview together, and there was one last show left to do for big people, which was in Texas. Um, but he couldn't do it. He yeah. got through that last interview with the guys. And um, so through all of that, Ben literally played music until the end, until he couldn't yeah. do it anymore. Um, so and it was a sad ending for the band. And, of course, afterward, they tried to move on, 
you know, after Ben was gone, they did they did some shows and they brought somebody out. But they the guys all looked at each other and they and it's quoted in the book. They like I asked Liberty about it, Liberty DeVito, and he said we all knew that Ben was the rock star of this band and it just wasn't the same without him. Right. So big people eventually just sort of broke up and went on their own ways and did other things. Well, there are a few um, other things. But, I mean, you got you got a lot of good photos in here and. Photos that probably Cars fans have never seen before. And one thing that I wish happened, that he was alive long enough to get inducted into the Hall of Fame and be part of that reunion tour with the, that the Cars had. That yeah. Those are the two things that it's too bad that um, he was never a yes. part of. I actually, I actually went to Cleveland and I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony to see the band get inducted yeah um i went i went to cleveland and, and took part in that well was in the audience and and was able to see that and you know that that last cars album they did um in 2011 move like this yeah. um obviously it would have been so much better if ben was involved but i do really like that album yeah they didn't even try to replace ben they had greg hawks play bass and um the producer of the album his name is jackknife lee um, he played some bass, um, so they just did it with the four of them, and in honor of Ben, didn't even attempt to replace him in any way. They just did, did the album with the four of them. Well, Rick Ocasek um, so, wrote and recorded the song Silver. That was a tribute to Orr, right? That was on Ocasek's 2005 album, Next Day. You were my As an author now of this book, and this is the first ever biography, I believe, of Benjamin Orr. Like I think I, I mentioned that. Do you ha now have a favorite Ben song or car song that he was involved with? That's an interesting question. Um, and I have 
been asked that before. And the first time I was asked that question, I I really had to think about it, you know? And I can't remember necessarily what my answer was the first time I was asked that, but I've thought about it since. And for me, this is cheating a little bit, but for me, um, it is side two of their debut album. Um, so it's really... Well, the, the, the side two of that debut album opens up with the song, You're All I've Got Tonight. Yes. But then the final three songs of that album, Bye Bye Love, Into Moving in Stereo, Into All Mixed Up, those three songs sort of segue together. Yes. There's no break in between the songs. And for me, it's like one long song. Hmm. So that's what my answer is. It's not one song. It's actually three songs, but it feels like one song to me. <laughs> and they're so all Benjamin. Bye-bye Love, <laughs> Bye Love, Moving in Stereo, all mixed up. That's and three song, <laughs> and they're all sung by Ben. Yes, exactly. Very good. So do you have an, are you going to work on a new project now? Um, I am. And you know, I, I haven't... Um, because this book took me so long to do, and you know, it's never about money. Um, when you're a writer, especially a freelance writer, you do it because you love it. You yes. don't do it because it's going to make you a millionaire. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, unless you're Stephen King or something, right? Yeah. Um, so I do it for the love of it. Um, so it's never about the money or how many books I'm going to sell. Do I want the book to sell? Do I want it to sell a lot of copies? Of course I do. But it's not the be-all, end-all. But I will say that I think I took a roundabout way, or not a traditional way with this book, because, like I mentioned earlier, it took me a decade to write it. So when it came out finally, I said to myself, I'm not going to start another book for a while because I want to promote this book. I spent so much time and poured so much of my life and my heart into really? it that I want to take some time to properly promote it. And I want as many people to know about this man, Ben, as I possibly could. So the book has actually been out the other day was actually the two, two year anniversary yeah. of this book coming out. So I spent from November of 2018 until now, promoting the book and spreading the word about this incredible man and musician. So I am just now getting to the point where I'm starting to look at what I'm going to do next. I can tell you it's going to be music related. I mean, that's my passion. So it'll be music related. And where I'm at right now is I have a short list of a few ideas that I'm going to present to my publisher. And I don't have a final answer yet. But I'm starting to narrow it down now. You know what the natural route would be, right? A car's oh, yeah. biography. <laughs> well, actually, either that or people are telling me a biography about Rick. There you go. Now that, now that Rick has passed on, people yeah. are saying, I mean, you know, I have, um, I have a Facebook page for the book. And, um, you know, I am so thankful. There so, and because I was working on it for so long, um, and Facebook is such a great platform that a lot of Cars fans have been following me for years, yeah. wanting this book to come out and waiting for it. Yeah. So I already had, you know, not me, uh, the, the book and Ben had a following. I don't yes. want to say me personally. Um, but these people were all so interested in the book coming out. I had a mailing list of, you know, a whole bunch of names of people who wanted the book when it came out. And now those people are coming back to me and saying, you're going to do Rick now? <laughs> you need to do a book about Rick now. I think that would be great. Short list, yeah, I think it would that? be good. I think that would be a natural um, because all these people could follow right into the next chapter, which would be Rick or the cars. Um, I know other yeah. books have been written about the cars, but, you know, you have something that other authors don't. Which is this first yeah, ever book? Yeah, I have a head start on it, you if do. you will. You do. You know. So I hope it's I'd like to see that. It's definitely something that is in consideration. There's so many factors involved in it. I would, you yeah. know, I'd want to go through Rick's estate, yeah. and I'd want to get blessings from certain people. I wouldn't, you know what I mean? I, I would want to do it properly. Yeah. Um. So 
but by no means it's definitely on my list and something I've been thinking about. I'll tell you one other thing that I've been told by fans. Yeah. In one of my interviews, um, I said that I had a lot of, I had some leftover interviews yeah. and stuff. And um, you had mentioned the photos in my book. Right, a lot of um, good ones. Most of the photos in there had never been seen before. They were given to me by people I interviewed, taken right out of their personal collections. Right. I collected nearly 500 photos. Wow. And when I went to the publisher and we started working on getting this thing out, they said to me, one of the main things that they liked about this was a, that I interviewed so many people, and B, that I had all these cool photos that no one had seen before. Yeah. So I get ready to start picking out the photos, and what does the publisher tell me? You can have 36 photos in the book. <laughs> and I went, what? That was almost as hard as writing the book, trying to pick 36 photos out of 500? Yes. <laughs> so the reason I'm saying this is, once fans heard that, that I had leftover interviews, there were also people that I didn't really get to interview that I still could, and I had all these leftover photos, Ben fans are telling me to do a companion book about Ben. <laughs> Put out another book and have all those extra photos that we all want to see, and the leftover interviews that didn't get in the first book, and do, you said you had interviews that you didn't get to do with people, talked to all, because I had people, after the book came out, I would get random emails from people saying, oh, I wish I had known you were doing this <laughs> book, I knew Ben, and blah, 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 I wish I could have talked to you. So I have Ben fans telling me to do a companion book and include all the stuff that didn't get in the first book. Yeah. And it sounds like a great idea, but I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, <laughs> do I really want to do this? <laughs> No, I mean, not that I wouldn't enjoy it and don't love the subject. Obviously, I do, but, you know, I Ben was so weaved and in, woven into my life for a decade, mm -hmm. and now I'm, now I'm being approached about doing it more. Well, so, you can always it's do... It's on my list, though. Maybe you could do a coffee table book, get together with a photographer, and put all these extra photos in, too. Oh, that's a thought. It's definitely, it's definitely a possibility, and it's on my list. And if I didn't say that... Um, all the Cars fans that I'm friends with now are going to hear this interview and come back to me and say, you, you better have that on your list. Well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> so be, technically I'll be promoting it. Goldmine will be promoting it. We'll be behind you. <laughs> so I want, I want I to thank you. A, a Goldmine listeners, go out and get Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars, the first ever biography by Joe Milliken. And just, Joe, just Joe. to let people know really quick, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's right. Um, just want to let people know that anybody who might be interested in the book, I do have a website that people can go to um, for oh. the book if they want to read a little bit about, you know, a little more about what it's about. And it's got some photos there and stuff. It's really easy. It's benorbook.com. Mm. So if people want to go to my website and check it out, if they think they might be interested in the book, they can go to my website and take a look at it. Well, it's on Roman and Littlefield, so you can also go to Amazon probably, right? And, yep, Amazon, yeah. Barnes & Noble, uh, the publisher has their own website. So basically people can just go online to Google and you know plug in Ben Orr Biography, Let's Go, and uh, there's plenty of options for them for sure. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. And I want to remind Goldmine listeners, they could pick up the latest issue at Barnes & Noble and Books A Million. And you could get Let's Go while you're at it. And don't forget to go to goldminemag.com and listen to more podcasts. Thank you, Joe. Uh, this is Pat Prince signing off with Joe. It's been great, man. And I hope you come on again, especially if you're, you're into the next book. And you'll see Joe more in Goldmine's pages. He, he'll be writing some magazine articles for us as well. Pat, I can't thank you enough for having me on board to talk about my book. Um, you know, to give Goldmine a plug, I've I've been a Goldmine subscriber for have. many years. And a writer. I used. Yeah. To, that's right. I used to write for Goldmine. Um, a couple of cover stories along the way, and then I kind of went on to other things for a while. But now you're. Um, generously letting me be a contributor again. So if you don't, especially you record collectors out there, music collectors, um, Goldmine is the perfect publication for you. So make sure you go and check it out. It's a it's a wonderful music publication. Um, I've loved it for years. You do you guys do a wonderful job. So Thank I you, really Joe. appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. So we'll we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay, Pat. Thanks a lot, and thanks to all the listeners out there. And uh, Let's go. 
<laughs> Let's go. Thank you, Joe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.